0: Well, hey there, and welcome to a brand new episode of Show Me the Crypto. This week, we chat with Joan Westenberg, who's a tech writer, the founder of Studio
1: Self. It was a fascinating conversation. Ulf, what was your take? I enjoyed talking to Joan so much because Joan's in the nitty gritty all day. She spends two hours every morning researching the crypto space, has... 100,000 data points she looks at. So she really knows her stuff. And we kicked off the conversation. So Joan started her career teaching people how to use MySpace of all things. And that naturally led us into what it will take to bring the masses to a social platform that is decentralized and in the Web3 space. So that conversation was very interesting in itself. We then moved into NFTs and what's going on in that space. You know, it's a bear market. Prices have been fluctuating and that transition into one of Joan's uh, keynotes that happened at NFT Australia where she discussed the fact that maybe the term we're all going to make it and we're still early are maybe wrong and that it's maybe overly positive and s- sometimes those terms are used to be too optimistic and they aren't a realistic point of view. So we covered a lot in this episode and it was all from an interesting perspective that seemed real and i really enjoyed that
0: yeah i'll hit the nail on the head this interview spanned a lot of different topics but at the end of the day it was refreshing it was a refreshing take to have somebody who called it like it is listen it's not always rosy we're not all gonna make it we're not still early but here's what we need to do in order to get there to get to this point that we all want to reach to get that mainstream adoption. We think you're going to love this interview, this conversation with Joan Westenberg. Show me the crypto.
1: <laughs> Show me the crypto. Show me the crypto. In a world on the brink of disruption, Two men will bring you clarity by interviewing some of the most intelligent and influential names in the blockchain world. Welcome to Show Me The Crypto with your hosts, Wade Patterson and Ulf Lonegren.
0: Well, hi there, and welcome to Show Me The Crypto. My name is Wade Patterson. And I'm Al Flanagan. We're a couple of friends from Canada who love learning about cryptocurrencies and blockchain technology, and we're happy you're along for the ride. Whether you're a crypto virgin or you know your way around the block, we hope our interviews with some of the most intelligent and influential people in the blockchain space help deliver you with value. And on this episode, we're joined by tech writer and founder, Joan Westenberg. Joan's creative life and career began at the age of 15 as a self-described punk rock emo kid who found an opportunity helping brands understand how to leverage MySpace. Joan is founder of Studio Self, which is a Sydney-based marketing agency, product lab, and community that excels in effective communication through PR, content, brand strategy, marketing, and production across emerging technology. Joan, welcome to Show Me the Crypto.
2: Thank you very much. It is good to be chatting to you guys. I always feel like Aussies and Canadians get along well. There's there's some the kind of vibe that we have, right? <laughs> I, I agree.
1: I agree. Why there's do you think so that ma- is? There's so many Aussies in our city, by the way. Like I don't know if it's <laughs> yeah, everywhere in yeah, Canada, yeah. but they all come I, here. We got uh we got a ski hill where yeah. Wade and I live, and it's like Aussie nation up there. Yeah. That's why do you it? Why do you I don't think know it if is? You guys I think it's like we are hot Canada and you guys are cold Australia.
2: <laughs> that's my, that's my take. Basically, uh, I, I and we see get along well. Yeah. yeah, yeah,
0: I love it. Yeah, I, I agree. That's been my experience as well. There's a listen, Joe. There's a lot of things we want to dive into, but let's start with sure. threads. Let's start with Threads because Threads is sort of, we had an interaction on Threads and that's how this interview came about. But what I find interesting is clearly you're active on Threads, but if you go to your link tree, Threads is in the number two spot just behind the index. So given that we're only about two weeks into Threads life, what are your initial impressions about Threads?
2: Look, so I'm a big fan of Mastodon and Blue Sky and all those kinds of decentralized you know, social media networks. I love them, but most people are never going to be on them. They're complicated. They're pretty insular. And that's a, that's a benefit for absolute nerds like me. Most people want something that's very mainstream. They want a platform they can go onto where they can see text based posts from Shaquille O'Neal next to stuff about NFT. You know, that's the kind of content that people want to consume. And I think Twitter has is in the process of losing its place as the platform you go to for that. And I think there's a bunch of reasons we can point to. But for me, one of the biggest kind of problems that I see with Twitter is, you know, I remember a few weeks ago, the the Azuki stuff went down um, and the Elementals mint went down and people weren't happy inside. So, so I went on Twitter to search for people who were writing about it, people posting their thoughts and going through it. The top 50 posts about it with the most likes, with the most engagement activity, were stake accounts pretending to be Azuki or Zagabond promising people an Elemental's airdrop. And mm. that, that to me is the biggest reason that Threads is going to win, at least in the short term, because they don't have that bot spam problem. They don't have people trying to trick you into clicking on links and losing all your crypto. And Threads is going to be a much more friendly place to exist. Um, I just think that when you're, when you're on Twitter, especially when you're in crypto, it's kind of PvP, you know, like you are in danger just by logging onto that site because <laughs> everyone wants you to click on a link you know I and mean? don't lose your money. I um, love, I love calling
1: it PvP, totally. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you think I, about
2: it, you're somebody who's just entered the crypto space, right? You're trying to get used to it. You're trying to learn your way around. This stuff isn't easy. If you go on Twitter and you see a uh, Zagabond airdrop with 50,000 likes, of course you're going to go and click on that. You go on threads and you don't see that. You might say...
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, and while we're on this subject, we were going to ask this later because we wanted to talk a little bit about social platforms in in the Web3 space. But I think it's a natural transition to ask this question, which is, you know, what will it take to for, for a decentralized web three social platform to take off, will that ever happen? Or is it the, you know, the chicken before the egg when you're trying to build a platform that revolves around having a network of individuals and, you know, if nobody's there, nobody's going to use it. And so, like you said, everybody's on Twitter because that's where the big names are. That's where all the, all the juicy content is, you know, so what's it going to take for a decentralized web three social platform to take off?
2: I think we have to define what we mean by takeoff. Um, I don't think that there is any chance that a decentralized platform, any individual decentralized platform, becomes as large as some of the social networks that we used to have. And that's purely because there are more options. People are going more niche and there are more, there are more interest areas. So I think the days of, hey, Snapchat has launched and suddenly it has every single person under the age of 20 on it, I, I think those days are pretty much gone. But I do think that there is a lot of room for individual platforms to do a really good job of catering to a specific niche audience and giving them the best possible social experience that they can find. You know, I don't know if you guys have been on Warpcast, but that has been an excellent place for crypto builders and makers and devs to have decent conversations that have been really respectful, engaging, interesting, challenging, and, and very much free of spam and bullshit. So... They're doing a really good job there and their goal has been to build that network for those people. So that to me is what success looks like and they're, they're pretty much achieving it. Where this kind of goes astray is if you sort of take a step back and look at the macro and ask, well, is Threads a decentralized social network or will it become one at the point where it integrates with the Fediverse? you know, at the point where you can connect your Threads profile up to Mastodon because that's on their, their roadmap. That's something they want to do. My kind of vision for the future of social media is there's no one platform ruling everything. We're on a bunch of different platforms and we get to pick and choose the ones that we like. And we're not all going to have one place where we follow everyone. And that's not a terrible thing.
0: One of the the arguments I've heard about before in terms of favor or being in favor of kind of a Web3 social media future is the idea that you can you can take your audience with you and that was what yeah. was interesting to me about threads is that it was kind of the first web 2 social example where you could port over an audience basically a lot of people with the click of a button could have many people who are following them yeah. on Instagram come over with them to threads but you're still kind of under that meta umbrella do yeah. you see like do you see that as an important feature or as something that Could be in favor of Web3 in the future, this idea that you, not one single entity owns your audience, that you're kind of have the ability to take them
2: with you? So we're talking here about the idea of a movable social graph. And that is kind of the, the holy grail for online creators. Because without the possibility to move your social graph between platforms, you will always run the risk of becoming obsolete as platforms rise and fall. So... You know, in, I always point back to the days of MySpace and I'm, I'm, I'm 34, so I'm old enough that I was pretty heavily on MySpace. But there were a lot of influencers who were those, you know, MySpace digital celebrities. And that's what they were called back then. And there were people like Teela Tequila and Jeffree Star and so on. And when Facebook replaced MySpace, a lot of those folks took too long to make the jump, took too long to make the leap, and they couldn't build a new career. The exception to that was Jeffree Star who managed to look at what was happening and jump onto the next platform and jump onto the next platform and still has a a career today. Whether or not Jeffree Star should have a career is another thing entirely. (laughs) Kind of a piece of shit. But the point being that we've always been struggling with this since the first days of social media. If you are are popular on one platform, that doesn't mean you'll be popular on another. So if you can't take your social graph with you, then you actually have nothing. Like Your audience is not an asset. The only way to really move a social graph to this point has been through building an email newsletter. My like email is still the most powerful and important form of marketing that you are going to get because you can move that, you can own that, you can control that. If we can reach a point where your social graph is actually removable and you can take that from Twitter and plug it into Blue Sky, take it from Blue Sky, plug it into WalkCast, take it from WalkCast, plug it into threads, plug it into mastered on all these different places, plugging into Tumblr, that's going to be a very important evolution for create everywhere. And it's not impossible. We have the tools to do that. You know, like um, ActivityPub is designed to have that movable social graph. Um, so I feel very positive about the potential for that to exist. The Where things kind of get a bit gray between Web 2 and Web 3 is... To what extent you really own that social graph if it sits on somebody else's surface. Yeah. You know, so um, if you can download it, that's great. If you can make it somehow immutable, that's even better. If you could actually inscribe your social graph into some kind of blockchain tech and move that with you, that would be the best possible way to do this. You know, so I do envision some kind of future where you have a blockchain-enabled digital passport that is your profile that you can plug into anything and it brings your social graph with you that would be the brave new world for social media
1: yeah well i think like at least the way we like we've talked about it the idea would be you know you got your wallet and if you got your wallet you know that that address is your profile that and all your followers and your audience is attached to that and hopefully one day there are those platforms you can just plug your wallet into and you still bring your audience with you, you know, if your audience is mm-hmm. tuning in on that channel, so to speak. Um, but I think it's it's still like the, the problem we talked about is still there in that mm-hmm. even if you start building up that audience base with some, you know, decentralized idea of some kind are the 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 big players like the the Twitters and you know the mm. Facebooks are they not still gonna mm. sort of say no to that and and sort of fight this battle as creators want to own their audience mm. but the major social platforms in the web 2 space continue to say no like we're not going to allow that
2: I think this comes down to business models uh, I wrote a an essay yesterday, well, I've been writing it for a few weeks now. It's called How to Build an Internet That Doesn't Suck. Um, it's a long read. It's like 7,000 words. So I appreciate if people don't have time to go through it. But it kind of takes a position that the biggest reason the internet today sucks is that so much of the internet is ad supported. And so the biggest reason that social media platforms won't actually get behind movable social graph and won't get behind giving their users a full level of power control over the audience is that these platforms are still ad supported and so you're never really going to be able to to get to a fully user-centric platform as long as the most important customers for that platform are advertisers so there's a there's a fundamentally broken business model here that has not been solved by any platform out there um i think a lot of people would actually have been perfectly happy to pay a subscription to use the old Twitter, um, they didn't. They didn't need a verified badge. They didn't need any special features. There was always a movement of let me pay five dollars a month for Twitter because I want Twitter without ads. I think that's uh, a business model that can potentially work, but I don't think it's a business model that works at the level that a lot of these companies need. So we've we've kind of established social media as being a multi-billion-dollar industry. That's that's what it is. And we've done that because all these these platforms have raised significant amounts of money. Uh, they've raised millions and millions in VC funding. And so they need to be able to generate revenues that match or justify that VC funding. Um, whereas I think there's a chance that in actual fact, social media should never have been that kind of business. It should always have been smaller companies creating a smaller service and making profit in doing so and bootstrapping the whole thing. Um, but I think we were at a crossroads you know, 15 years ago and we went one way down the ads or the revenue kind of way and we should have gone the other. How do we change that now? I don't know. I hope that we can.
1: Going back in history a little bit here, you had uh, mm-hmm. just talked a little bit about MySpace. Uh, Wade did mm-hmm. mention in the bio that you once upon a time, We're helping brands understand how to get the most out of MySpace, how to use it. Can you take us back to that point in your life and talk about that part of your career and how that, you know, later on then led into crypto and and discovering the crypto space?
2: Yeah, so um, my story starts with the, the very important thing to understand which is that getting up at 4 a.m. to flip burgers at McDonald's really sucks. <laughs> it's not fun. Nobody wants to do it. And when you're a teenager and all you actually want to do is hit the skate park or jump in a van and you go and play some punk rock shows with your friends, getting stuck flipping burgers is hell. And I didn't want to keep on doing that. You know, I wanted to, to get out there and make things. I wanted to promote my band. I wanted to help promote my friends' bands. Um, and I had this pretty solid understanding of the internet already. You know, I was online very, very young. My family was one of the first people to be online in our town in Western Australia. So I had that that very early connection. And I had taught myself how to code. I taught myself how to do stuff online. And I knew how to use these platforms to try to get attention. And so I thought to myself, well, you know what? If I can actually make a little bit of money doing that, I don't have to make a lot of money in order to replace my McDonald's income. But if I can do that, then I can get on the road and tour. That was the the whole thought process there. Um, and so I did the the very basic beginning of DMing, or we're going to call this mass spanning a whole bunch of people on my space, <laughs> and just saying, hey, you are a brand on MySpace. This is the stuff that you're doing right. And this is the stuff that you're doing wrong. And this is how much money I'm going to charge you to do it better. And I got a few clients, you know, I, I managed to double the income that I was making by flipping burgers, and I should double that pretty quickly just by reaching out to people and getting them to sign on for let me manage their MySpace. Um, and it helped that I had the, the skills that I could go back and I could completely write in my new MySpace profile because, you know, back then, MySpace, you could actually create um, CSS and HTML layouts and make a MySpace look pretty slick. And so I had the coding skills to do that, and it really helped. But it meant that I could quit McDonald's and I could get on the road and I could tour around the place and anytime I could... Go you know, anywhere that had Wi-Fi, I was able to make some money. And that was that was pretty exciting. And I think at a young age, it introduced me to the idea of you don't have to follow somebody else's path. You know, you can sort of get out of there and forge your own way into the industries that you want to be in. You can make money online. You can be a digital creator. And you can do that by offering somebody a product that they want. Um, and so that was kind of my, I guess, my gateway drug into into eventually being into crypto. You know, it was that combination of tech and music. Um, that's how it all started. I, I wasn't I wasn't all in on crypto for a while. I was playing around with a few things when it, when it first sort of emerged. I was vaguely aware of Bitcoin. Um, it was only around 2018, 2017 that I got really into the space.
1: Awesome. And um, Wade also mentioned the index. So what is the index, when did it start, and why did you create it? So the
2: index is an independent publication focused on tech and Web3. What I really pitch this as it's the news that you need every single day to understand what's happening in Web3 in order to make it as a builder and entrepreneur. So X company is raising money. You need to know about that because you need to know who in the space is still investing. There's been a new thing breaking with the SEC. There's a new protocol launching. All this stuff gets covered in a pretty straightforward and I think relatively well-written bit of journalistic news every single day that you can tap into and read. It's completely free. You can pay to get extra data-based reporting, market reports, um, data analysis, data journalism, and so on. But the basic version of the index is a daily email that gives you all the things makers need to know. I started this back in November and, the reason was this was just after the um, the FDX scandal had broken and there was all this stuff going around about how they had been giving backdoor payments to journalists to not cover some of the stuff that was going on. And I thought that was pretty crap. You know, I, I don't like the idea of uh, a paid for private news media covering up criminals on Web3. That, that really rubs me the wrong way. So I wanted to build something that was completely independent, very transparent, not funded by thieves and billionaires, um, and ready to actually make a difference in Web3. So there's no advertising, there's no conflict of interest, there's a full ethics statement. I don't write about stuff that I've invested in without fully disclosing how much I've invested in where. I don't shield tokens, it's all very much above board. Ditching's can use this is so what you need to know. That's the that's the pitch for the index. I'm very passionate about it.
0: Can you walk us through your your research process? Cause while well, yeah. I understand that you hate waking up at 4 a.m. to flip burgers, you do still wake yeah. up at five AM to do research for the index, if I'm correct on that. So can you walk us through like what, what goes into yeah. gaining all that knowledge in order to write that informative content?
2: A lot of doom scrolling is what it kind of <laughs> down kind of to. Um, no, so I, I have, and I'm, I'm not joking here, I have 30 different Telegram groups and channels that I check every single morning, plus 16 Discord servers that I go through and read everything from. Plus I have AI and RSS feeds in my feedly and I have a long list of websites that I dive into every day. Um, I get all my data from TradingView um, where I just review every crypto coin, what they're doing, what's happening where. And I use Masari Pro for a bunch of insights and reporting. So going through all that, that's two hours every day. And it's it's sifting through what is actually being covered out there, what is important, where are the threads that I need to pull on and who's doing what. Um, so I tend to go through that just on my tablet and I sit there with a paper notepad and a pen and I write down the things that are interesting trends that are important and the pieces that i think i need to highlight so yeah that takes that takes about two hours and then actually writing it um it takes about another hour to two hours it's it's time consuming but the thing about all this information is if you don't take the time to properly pass it that's where you wind up spreading misinformation and misinformation is one of the biggest problems in web3
1: honestly the fact that you can do that all in two hours is, I think that's very impressive. That's a lot to <laughs> thats a lot to digest and then like, you know, repurpose into your own content in, in a matter of two like, hours. I will so say, good on you.
2: I pretty much burn out on Web3 every day around 3 p.m. Yeah. I get to 3 o'clock and I go, you know what? I hate this ecosystem. It's all going to zero. <laughs> Nothing matters and I'm out. And then I wake up the next day and I'm like, oh, fuck yeah, Web3. Yeah, let's do this <laughs> Every single day, I'm not. Like, yeah.
0: So what I'm curious about is like, what is the thing that people should be paying attention to right now? Because it seems like we go through these different phases of like moments in crypto, right? If we go back to 2017, there was the ICOs. uh, That was the big story. 2020 DeFi summer, 2021 NFTs explode. Like what what are the seeds being sown right now that could impact the next Bull run, or that more people will be paying attention to then?
2: I think the convergence of AI and NFTs is something that we are not paying enough attention to. Um, I don't know how it's going to manifest in the next bull run, but it is impossible to me that it won't. The idea of you know, some of the tech I've been showing, I've been playing with, is stuff that an NFT project coming out that will let you use AI to talk to your NFT. Um, or there's stuff coming out where people are building an NFT that's a, a PFP or a financial advisor and it taps into financial data and you can buy that NFT and it's like buying a financial advisor who you can talk to about your crypto investment. So there is some really interesting stuff happening in that kind of space. Um, and I think that's probably going to replace a lot of the kind of bullshit utility that we saw in the last run. So yeah, in the last run, everyone was promising, hey, we're going to build a game. I think in the next bull run, that's going to be pretty much nowhere to be seen, and it's going to be replaced with artificial intelligence and LLM. Um, however, different companies choose to integrate that, I don't know, but it will be the most powerful utility out there. I think we're probably going to see a resurgence of art for art's sake. I think people will start to really look at how Jack Butcher has done the Checks and Up Happens projects and see if they can learn something from that, because... There is something there. There's something very interesting going on with the way it's approaching art and the way it's approaching culture. And then the last thing that I'm sort of fascinated by and looking at is the idea of smaller web three brands. So in the last bull run, obviously the goal was sell a bunch of NFTs, raise VC funding, try to become a billion dollar unicorn. And that was the the Euclid's model and people were very excited about doing that. But I think the next sort of weight on companies are going to be much smaller and much more purposeful. It will be teams of three people who will not need a lot of runway to build the things that they build because they will be doing either art for art's sake or they will be doing LLM and chat GPT kind of products that require smaller teams anyway. That's kind of my view from where I'm, I'm sitting right now and from the conversations I've been having with builders. And look, uh, I'll be the first to say anecdotes don't equal data. Just because I've heard a lot of stories like this doesn't mean that this is hundred percent going to happen but if you're asking my my point of view from where i'm sitting at this moment in the cycle those are the three areas that i think to really see a lot of change
1: so in regards to you just mentioned when we were talking about your schedule waking up early and that you get sick of the web three space by 3 p.m <laughs> is that why at nft fest australia for those who aren't aware, you had a keynote called "No, We're Not Early," and some might have, you know, took that as a bit of a slight on uh, those in the the crypto space, as if it's a negative point of view. Maybe it ties back, maybe it doesn't. But can you tell us a little bit about your talk on um, sure. "No, We're Not Early"? You know, why is that? Why is that your take? And what was that all about? Yeah, I mean.
2: I don't believe in excuses. I, I do not like excuses because I think for the most part, people should focus on controlling the things that are in their power to control and not worrying about anything else. And for a lot of companies, the stuff that was in their control was delivering on a roadmap and creating utility and building our product. And they didn't do that. Well, that that's what we saw in the last four on a lot of empty problems. And the excuse that kept on coming up was, we're still early, just you wait, wait till the next bull run, we're still early. And I just had a real problem with that kind of take on things because we're not that early, literally. The Bitcoin white paper came out in 2009. So when I gave that e-note, that's like 13 years in which we had a lot of time to build. And the idea of saying no, we're still early at that point, that was a little bit a little bit, so sort of not good enough. A lot can happen in thirteen years. You know, think about what happened with the internet in thirteen years, like from nineteen ninety, which was pre Netscape, so pre the first commercial browsers, all the way through to two thousand and three, when we had the first social media sites blowing up. A lot happened in that time period. You know, we went from having no browsers to having Google and MySpace and Yahoo and all these different tech companies. We had Amazon these companies that were changing the world that happened in 13 years and then you go back through kind of human history and you look at what we've been able to achieve in other areas in 13 years like we went from um pretty basic rocket science in the the last years of world war ii we went from that to actually having people in outer space and having people on the moon in a period of about a decade <laughs> you can do a lot in 10 years we went from Um, The birth of flight in around 1900 through to having the first warplanes, the first battles in the sky in about 13 to 14 years, uh, between 1900 and 1914. Like, we can achieve a lot in a short period of time. And so pointing to where we are today, with the amount of technological power that we have, with the internet, with access to a huge amount of resources, with the ability to work with and collaborate with anyone anywhere in the world, it just seemed pretty poor to me. To point to 13 years of progress and say, we're still early. Because I just don't feel like we are. And that's not an indictment of the space. Because if I didn't believe in Web3, I wouldn't be here. You know, I'd take my three o'clock slump and I'd just quit and take my bat and ball on my MetaMask and just go hunt. But I really do deeply believe in this space. I just think that the space doesn't grow if we keep on using that excuse instead of just doing the things that need need to happen, which is executing and building product simple as that.
0: The presentation was kind of broken into three parts. So the first part was that overall definition of what, you know, we're not that early. Um, The second part had to do with music NFTs. And then in the end, you kind of brought everything together on where do we go from here? But the music NFTs was the one that's interesting. And and I definitely get from like the digital music perspective, like that's been around for a while. But uh, last summer, I think it was Ulf and I had a couple interviews, probably three in a row, that were specifically, we were trying to wrap our heads around like, Music NFTs, what it's going to yeah. take to hit the mainstream potentially, or will it hit the mainstream? And and we had a couple of artists on who are really trying to make a go of it, and and they're finding some success. But maybe just get first off, can you put into context, you know, what the thesis yeah. was there, how we're not early on something like music NFTs, where it feels like we're very early there, and just maybe yeah. your your take, uh, especially with your music background, of like- yeah, like where do you see the music NFT space going from here?
2: I think a part of the problem is that it is still the music NFT space. Yeah, it's some um, We're not talking about digital music. We're talking specifically about tokenized music, and that has a very limited audience. Hmm. We don't have a lot of people out there at the moment who are interested in or care about music itself. They're trying to trade and flip tokens. Hmm. And so you're not seeing that kind of collector interest because people just don't view music NFTs in the same way that they view uh, or GFPs, things of that nature. The biggest problem with a lot of the folks that I kind of work with, the people I've spoken to who are trying to release music NFTs, I think there's two problems really here. The first is that a lot of the folks who are trying to release music NFTs would not have that level of, would not have a, a high level of success if they were launching a vinyl record, let alone a music NFT. They haven't done that kind of groundwork to build an audience of people who want to buy their work just yet. And they're kind of coming into the music NFT space hoping to find that audience. But that audience doesn't really exist. You know, there are people who care about music NFTs, but they're not dedicated to collecting them. And so I think you have these artists who don't yet have an audience who are hoping that crypto people will be that audience, and that's just not working out. And then on the flip side of that, you have artists who have a, a solid audience and they're trying to experiment with NFTs, but their biggest fear is driving their non-crypto audience away. And so they're a bit scared of actually standing up and saying, hey, we're doing an NFT project because there's so much misinformation about crypto out there that their um, their non-crypto fan base will become incensed and start screaming at them and yelling at them. And they don't want that. And so you have these two groups of artists, people with an audience who are trying to appeal to an NFT crowd who aren't, oh, just aren't there, and people who have an audience who are trying to appeal to an NFT crowd just aren't there because they're scared of appealing to their own audience. And what this really comes down to is incredibly talented musicians making music and making tokenized music with nobody to buy it. And that's kind of a sad state of affairs. Um, We talk a lot about the collective community in NFT and Web3 and so on. Um, And I would kind of challenge the very idea that we have a collective because I think what we mostly have is a flipping community, That's the vast majority of people who buy NFTs and not buying them because they love them. They're not buying because they love the art. Let's just pull the bandaid off. They're buying them because they want to make a flip on blur. That's that's the whole deal here. And if there's no opportunity for that in music, nobody's going to buy music NFTs.
1: Now you're talking about, let's say, the majority yeah, no, in the space, yeah. because that I would agree with you. That is probably the majority yeah. people are in it to make a buck. Um, but let's also recognize that there is a smaller, maybe, you know, maybe more yeah. minority, but there are people who are in it for collecting. And uh, at the very least, uh, you know, in Wade and I's talks with uh, a couple of these music NFT artists, um, the they were the one, at least the couple we had on our show were quite positive about their transition into uh, music NFTs. And to your point about the different types of uh, artists adopting uh, music NFTs for their, you know, and and, and getting into this space, they were, I would say the people we interviewed had a small audience in the traditional, you know, music space, came into the NFT space, and arguably, found more exposure. Uh, perhaps, uh, probably a chunk of that um, exposure and audience was there just to buy and sell and, and, and try and make a buck. But we heard direct from them that they had, they felt like it was, you know, they had this stronger connection with the fans that they did have in the space because their fans felt like they were. In a sense, joining a fan club and had become, you know, more connected with that artist. They had a level of access that they wouldn't yeah. have with a with a regular artist when you just go buy their album or you buy their song or you just listen to it on Spotify. Yeah. So I, I do. Th- I, I just wanted to throw that out there as a level of recognition yeah. that you are, probably are right in in like the the majority perspective, but that there is a level of success. And I think Wade and I actually yeah. talked. to, We've had some bet a couple bets going this year and one of the the bold predictions wade had made uh was that music is going to be wrong by
0: the way was that
1: music (laughs) nfts would take off this year and um i i said no i don't think so i I think it's maybe just early but uh you know i think there's some optimism for where it might go in the future Mm -hmm. and perhaps we're just not there yet and the technology and the adoption still needs to get further along. So what's your take, you know, after hearing some of, uh, you know, what we've heard speaking to our guests? So, I'm not, I know, like, my
2: past answer to the last question was pretty negative in tone. Um, And that's just based on where things are. But that doesn't mean that I'm not hopeful about the future of this. Um, I do really see a future where a band or an artist's true fans, there were 100 true fans, are going to buy some NFTs and become deep supporters of their work. And you know, I'm I seeing some cool acts like Avenged Sevenfold um, who are experimenting with that space. And I think that's very fucking cool. But in order to get to a point where that reaches critical mass, I think a few things have to have to change for us to get there. Um, we don't have a lot of great infrastructure right now, for example, to listen to our music NFT. You know, even open like, Right now, to listen to music NFT, you probably have to go to OpenSea and have a listen there. And that's just not really that viable. That's that's not a great experience. So a lot of the people who are, are going to be coming into this space loving music are going to understand, yeah, it's going to be great to buy a song, but then they're going to ask me, okay, what do I do with it now if I can't go and listen to it? And so I think that missing piece needs to be solved by someone somewhere. And then the other part of this, I think, is that we might have got NFTs, a little bit wrong as a whole, which is this take that maybe NFTs should never really sell for that much money. Hmm. Maybe maybe it makes more sense when we talk about NFTs to talk about them in the context of vinyl records or collectibles on StockX. Now you go into a platform like StockX, there is a lot to look at and buy and so on, but most of the stuff that you're going to see traded. Trades for like two hundred to eight hundred dollars. You know, we're talking sneakers, we're talking vinyl statues, we're talking uh, limited edition mouse pads and T-shirts and so on. It kind of hits around that price point, and that's where people are trading these goods. And people are pretty happy with that price point. But with NFTs, because it became such like a mainstream thing, it was in the mainstream press, the mainstream media talking about this JPEG sold for a million dollars, that kind of thing. I think we got this overblown idea of what an NFT should be or could be or will be or is worth, which really kind of doesn't make sense to a lot of people and particularly doesn't make sense in the concept of music, because most music NFTs are going to be relatively fungible. You you, you have a song, you buy a song, unless you're buying a one of one song, you kind of want to buy the same song that your friends are buying because... That's a song that you all love and you want to share in that experience. And it doesn't make sense for that to be trading at hundreds of thousands of dollars, thousands of each, that kind of thing. But we have this expectation that it should because that's what happened with these other NFTs. And so I think, kind of you know, stepping back, sitting back from those points, where we need to go from here is number one, we need infrastructure for music NFTs that makes it work for people. And number two, we need to redefine the value proposition for music NFTs where we stop expecting them to have the same kind of value proposition as like board apes.
0: It's a, a really interesting and refreshing take. and I think I think you're bang on, Joan, for sure. Um, you know, one yeah. of the things we were chatting about before we hit the record button was, you know, Alf and I were joking about the reason we launched this podcast was so we could actually talk to people about crypto because in our real lives, yeah. there's not a lot of people that we can. you you kind of made the yeah. same comment. But what I'm interested about is that you're you're also writing articles for for like ink. For example, talking about why influencers need the metaverse and talking about, you know, kind of the bull case for, maybe not the bull case for NFTs, but why NFTs will matter. So what do you say in those conversations that you're having with your friends who maybe aren't familiar with the crypto space who, you know, you, you, you even say the word metaverse and people get their guard up or they roll their eyes or that kind of thing. Like you're clearly able to articulate it in a powerful way to the masses. So, what are you saying in those one on one conversations?
2: I'm keeping my mouth shut.
0: Too, <laughs> you. Uh,
2: Why? You need, <laughs> you're, like, you're
0: one of the people who no, can explain it well. You need to.
2: <laughs> yeah, but I did a really good job of explaining it well during the last bull run. People were listening and then everything cracked and I was in the news. <laughs> and now, all my, my friends who know that I'm in the space, I catch up with them for coffee and they have this smile and they go, but how's your crypto going? <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> and um, I just I don't I don't want to have that conversation because it's it's still pretty poor, you know like we all lost money in Luna we all lost money FDA I I just you know what I'd rather have the results speak for me so mm-hmm. like my 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 job here isn't to go out and convert the masses my job is to work with the people building crypto to build a better space and a better ecosystem. So the next time people start to ask questions about, hey, what's going on with that crypto thing you're working on, I can point to better infrastructure, better products, better builders, and more trustworthy people. That's kind of the goal here. Um, and if that means just keeping my head down, doing some writing, talking to cool people, interviewing projects that aren't full of shit, and and really trying to push a better narrative, I'm okay with that because I think this is the time, like this is the time to be building, not proselytizing we have to do a much better job of being an ecosystem if we want new people to join this ecosystem
1: but what about playing the long game planting those seeds now they'll your your friends will get snarky they'll say they're right but you just wait it out a little longer and then eventually when you're right that's when you come that's when you become the snarky person
2: I think it is it is that consistency, but it's consistency in output rather than consistency in evangelism. Um, which is just to say that right now we spend too much time evangelizing crypto and hyping it up and not enough time building the stuff that is going to make it work. And that has to flip.
1: And on that, because this goes back to, again, this goes back to your talk yeah. about, you know, we are yeah. not early um, and, and sort of the point you're making there. But I, I was thinking about that. You know, I, I watched that uh, keynote, which I I really did like a lot of what you had to say. And I think the overall message is kind of funny because at face value, it sounds negative. But I actually think it's kind of like a positive message to say like, look, we're, we're yeah. here. We got to put in the work. We got to build. Yeah. Um, you know we can't make excuses and just assume everything's going to build itself. But on that note, do you think that message is sort of uh, undermining those who are actually building? Because there are lots of people building in the space right now, and rather it's the it's the greater. You know, audience who's not the builders who kind of say those things. Like, I don't. I, I guess builders too, but do, but they're only saying it really to hype up their existing audience, kind mm. of thing. Uh, mm. So, what what's your take from that angle? You know, someone who might feel offended when they're like, yeah. "I am, I'm here, Bill. I've been building for years," kind of thing. I
2: mean, I think my response there would be, "If I'm not talking about you, I'm not talking about you." You know, like if you are building and delivering product, and you know that you are actually doing that that message is not for you feel confident right. that it's not for you but you got to remember that when i delivered that you know that was not that long off the um the last NFT NYC. i don't know if you guys went to NFT NYC. no um but that was a lot of people and thousands of speakers getting up and repeating that what's so early light mm. and they weren't builders like these speakers were a lot of influencers who weren't building anything, weren't making anything, We're just there to to shill products or shill tokens and so on. And they were not building anything and they were using that with so early line to hype everything up. Mm. I come across sometimes as being negative about this space purely because I am such a believer in this space. Um, and because I'm a believer, I see where it can go and what we can do with it and, and the difference that it can make in people's lives. And that pushes me to call out the things that are crap, you know, the things that are not working, the things that are that are making this ecosystem so unstable and dangerous for people to be. And I think that's a really important thing to do because if you love crypto, if you love Web3, if you love NFTs, you should love them realistically. And you should make it your mission to fight for the people who are building and to shut down the people who are here to take advantage. And so there are a lot of people who are doing cool things in this space. Um, People who are building cool media brands. Like you, you guys, you guys are building something that is about having real conversations with real people and spreading the word about a good ecosystem. That is what we need. And there's people like my mates who are building Fundamental here in Australia who are trying to build a new alternative to the way that we build hierarchical systems. Right? There are people who are very passionate about using decentralization for good creating something valuable creating something for profit that makes the world a better place and those people I am 100% behind you know I I, I support them all the way but they will be drowned out by the people who are relying on hype and the people who are using that wet early line they're going to drown out the real builders and so until we we stand up for the people delivering product and call out the people using excuses I don't think we have a better ecosystem. The people who are delivering products and delivering on their roadmap, they never talk about being early because they're talking about what they're doing now.
0: I love that. And I agree that it's important because, yeah, this is, this is an industry from time to time that is a bit of a circle jerk, that's a bit of a, you know, everyone's hyping up everything. Mm. And to take that kind of, Realistic view from time to time, it is, it is, uh, I mentioned this before, refreshing just because. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think it's important for us to have a dose of reality from now and then because that's yeah. that's the scary moments, right? Is when everyone's like, "This is perfect," you know. We're all going to make it. We're all going to make it. Oh yeah, that, that's that's one of the scariest times to be.
1: Well, <laughs> in my that's
2: when you sell everything. Yeah. 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 yeah,
1: and there's scammers and people taking advantage mm. everywhere in the space. Mm. So it's so true. Like the people who are doing the good work, like they need to be recognize it and, and shown the respect, but at the same time, everybody else needs to get called out. Like it makes me think yep. of, um, the Coffeezilla Logan Paul, um, thing. Did you, oh did my you God, yeah. Whole, yeah. Like, yep. like, yeah, that, those are the kind of call us, those people who come in with big money who yep. then just scam massive mm. audiences. And like, and that's, I yeah. mean, that's one of a million, right? Like it, it, it's happening <laughs> everywhere, but, uh, it's it's good to see when those people get called out for the shady work, that, yeah. the shady things they've done in our space to make it, you know, to sully it and make it uh, scare people yeah, but off. A if, name, huh? Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
2: So. yeah, it's not good, is it? You know, I mean, we don't want them out there spreading the word about crypto because they're spreading the wrong word. It's not good. So, Joan, there's a there's the last few
0: questions and we're gonna make heavy pivots because these are kind of four different directions cool. we're, gonna, yep. we're gonna take these categories. But the first one I want to jump into I'm love it, love it. So the first one i wanna jump into is uh, the fact that in late 2019 you wrote an article for the correspondent about your journey into sobriety. And then earlier this hey. year you tweeted, I believe it was in January, that sobriety saved your life. So what's what yeah. prompted you to stop drinking?
2: I was pretty sure that if I didn't quit drinking, it was going to kill me. Um, I was on a really dark path. You know, I, I started drinking pretty young. Um, in Australia, the drinking age is 18, but I was drinking long before that. And I was in all these spaces where that was pretty normal. you know. I was touring around and playing in bands. And you know, there's a lot of drinking that happens in that kind of music space. And then I got into tech, where there's a lot of alcohol, there's a lot of cocaine, there's a lot of drugs, there's a lot of things like that going on. Um, I worked in some agencies, agencies are even worse, and it just built up and built up. Now, at the point where I got sober, I was I was starting my day by drinking straight gin in the shower before work, and then I'd get to work, uh, work for a few hours, I'd nip out for a quick drink, and I'd go back to work, go and get pre-slushed at lunch, go back to work. Finish work and go partying until like three in the morning. Squeeze in some sleep. Wake up the next day do it again with dinner and shower. That's not sustainable. And I was, I was getting pretty rough there. Um, it, it's a pretty known fact that alcohol can be a depressant. It can be a downer. Um, and so if you're if you're struggling with with stuff, if you're having a, sort of a, a bad space, um, and in my case, I'd just been through a pretty rough breakup. And so the drinking was making that a whole lot worse. And this one night I came pretty close to suicide. Like you know, it was it was something that I wasn't even thinking about during the daytime. I wasn't thinking about it if I was sober. But when I started drinking, those dark thoughts were making making themselves known. And I came pretty close to it. And so I woke up the next day and I just thought, you know what? This is a problem that I can't hide from anymore. Um I made the decision to sober up, to stop drinking, to, to get clean, get dry. Um, I found out after that, that a bunch of my friends had a group chat going where they were talking about my drinking and, and how worried they were about me. And this was people from different friend groups who had connected about it. Like it was obvious to everyone but me. Um, and so, you know, I've been taking it one day at a time ever since. And this is, I'm past four years now, but it's waking up every single day and going, you know what? I'm not going to drink today. And it is a daily choice. Yeah. It's not like, Hey, I've beaten alcoholics and now I'm not an alcoholic anymore. Like for me, it's more like I am an alcoholic. I'm just not drinking at the moment. And hopefully I never will again. But yeah, it's, um, it's a rough path to be on. But if you are, if you're ever struggling with, with your drinking, I think it's worth, if you're asking yourself the question, Am I an alcoholic? It's probably worth giving it up for a bit because. There's nothing inherently wrong with drinking. There's nothing wrong with with having a few drinks. That's great. But for some of us, we just cannot do that because it leads to other things and other things and other free.
0: Before we change gears on that topic, was there something like partway through? Because I would imagine that it was hard. Like it was not an easy thing. I'm sure that there was temptations. But for someone who's maybe listening to this, who's thinking about, okay, you know, I got to take that step in my life. Do you have a piece of advice that like something that got you past those temptations in order to keep that that long streak alive?
2: Yeah, I think it's understanding what matters to you in the long run versus what matters to you in the short term. So having those bigger goals of things that you want out of your life that you know that your are drinking is going to hold you back from. And for me, it was, you know, building a new relationship, starting a family, um, growing my business, um, getting out of debt. All those things I knew would never happen if I was still hiding behind the alcohol if I was still using that as a crutch. So I think, yeah, it, it's not so much about, hey, I'm going to set the goal of being a server for four years. It's I'm going to set some goals that are gonna be dependent on me being sober.
1: Congratulations on your sobriety today. Thank you. As Wade mentioned, we are gonna say, yeah,
2: I don't sorry, I, I don't judge people who are who are drinking. Like I've got no problem with it. But if you feel like you've got a problem, you gotta step
1: up. Mm-hmm. Now, as Wade mentioned, we are going to pivot around it a bit. So apologies Oop. for the, the harsh <laughs> shift <laughs> the sharp between transitions. Uh, questions here. Bit <laughs> of a whiplash. I'm yeah, proud. yeah. Um, so we had Betty, uh, who's the founder of Dead Fellows, mm-hmm. on the pod. And something we talked about with her is inclusivity in the Web3 space and getting her take on that. And as a transgender woman, we thought, hey, mm-hmm. who better to ask to get you know, get your take as someone who's maybe more of a minority in the space.
2: Ooh. Something that I've said a few times out there is Web3 has actually been, and this might be a contrarian take, but Web3 has actually been way more accepting of me than Web2. Hmm. Um, But in a very interesting way. In, in Web2, a lot of people kind of went out of their way to try to be Almost performatively accepting, you know, hey, come join this panel, come talk about diversity, come do this and that and so on, um, which is great. But it ke- it just kept on coming down to people in Web2 wanted to talk to me about being trans. But the thing that I found in Web3 is that people want to talk to me about Web3.
1: People
2: hmm. want to talk to me about the index. They want to talk to me about my perspective on NFTs and my take on things. Um, and that's been really refreshing and really quite nice. Uh, there's just there's been this emphasis on the things that I'm good at and the things that I know about. And as a trans person, like that's kind of what I want is people to focus on what I do and what I know more than who I am. Um, I think there are definitely some people in Web3 who come at this from a more conservative angle. and because of kind of the way the discourse has gone over the past 20 years, there's some convergence between conservatism and being anti-trans but i think as a whole most of the people that i speak to in web3 are pretty cool (laughs) you know they're pretty accepting people they just want to build they just want to make stuff they're really quite lovely and i've had a lot of very cool experiences i think that's important because like what what are we trying to build here we're trying to build a better internet right like that's what Web3 is all about. We're building a better internet. And to do that, we've got to build an internet that's pretty respectful of each other. And I, like consider my ball case, I do believe that most people in Web3 are good humans who care about building that better internet and care about each other.
0: Love that. That's good to hear. Um, and you know, one, one final thing that I want to touch on before we get into the last section of questions, which is the same questions we ask every single guest on the show, um, is kind of the time period we're at right now. So we're in the depths of a crypto winter (laughs) and, and, you know, you're, you're still putting out the work, you're, you're putting out the index, you're keeping an eye on the space. You entered the space or, or at least gave it a bit more attention it sounded like in 2017 2018 so you've been through this bear yep. market situation before what's your advice yep. this is a common question we've asked a lot of guests but i think it's an important one for for somebody who's maybe experiencing their first bear market and are feeling disgruntled or frustrated and seeing you know prices do their thing or whatever but like what's your message to why somebody should definitely stick around pay attention right now
2: First of all, yeah, crypto goes in cycles. Just because it's down now doesn't mean it will always be down. Like We've had these low moments before where myself and people I know have looked at each other and just gone, maybe it's time to quit. (laughs) We've had that in previous cycles. And I think it's totally natural to feel like that when things are down in the way that they are. And the advice I give people is the same advice I'm trying to follow myself, which is don't sweat the bear market just focus on the things that you love about this space and do that you know so if you love nfts focus on the artists who are making cool art and the people who are doing cool things rather than stressing about the azuki floor you know like focus on the stuff that you are excited about and that you care about define your experience in web3 by the things that you love not by the things that you hate because it's always much easier to find stuff to get mad about than it is to find stuff to get psyched about, but you're going to have a much better time if you are focused on what is getting you excited and what is getting you up in the morning. Um, and that doesn't mean you've got to ignore the problems. I'm, I'm definitely not a fan of putting your head in the sand, but you you kind of you've got a marathon to run here. Like getting through the bear market is not a sprint; it's a marathon. And so you've got to be able to conserve your energy, your emotional energy, and your physical energy in order to get through the next six months, 12 months, 18 months. Don't burn yourself out trying to do everything all at once. Just find the stuff that you love and do that well and you'll get through
0: That was was inspirational. I'm always thinking in my head because we clip little parts of the interview for for clips on social media. I'm like, that was just a beautiful little clip. That's going to be perfect. (laughs) Talking about, you know, the heading bear market advice to get you through. Yeah, we'll maybe match it to some really motivational music (laughs) or something. It'll be beautiful. Joan, this has been an awesome conversation. Uh, As mentioned, you've done a great job just articulating everything, but you're not off the hook yet. We have a segment where we ask every guest it's three questions. We call it You hey. Had Me at Crypto. Ulf is going to ask you those three questions. Joan, are you All right,
1: ready? let's do it. Yeah. I'm ready. All right. The first question. Who's your favorite person to follow in the crypto space? Favorite person to follow? Got to be Jack Butcher. I just really love the, the content he puts out, the way he thinks about the space. It's awesome. Awesome. Question two, what will the price of Bitcoin be 10 years from now?
0: (laughs) Not financial advice.
1: It will be
2: lower than I want it to be and higher than it should be.
0: (laughs) Which, which would be about in US dollars?
2: (laughs) Oh, I answer everything in Aussie Uh, (laughs) Uh Uh dollary-do's. Look, I would be very shocked if Bitcoin was above one hundred K in ten years' time. Interesting. Um, just because I don't believe that anything has the potential for infinite growth. And I think everything, whether it's Apple stocks or Bitcoin, will always find a place where it tops. And I reckon it'll be around one hundred K. However, I wanna give a message here to for future me in 10 years time. <laughs> I'm so sorry if I'm wrong and i will just make you like an idiot.
1: <laughs> I love this question because it ties to the US dollar is how we ask it. And <laughs> it's like, who knows what'll happen with that in 10 years. Yeah, so yeah. 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 But uh, all right, third question. What is the most underrated project in the crypto space?
2: Uh, I reckon it's Wallet Connect. I mean, I haven't had that one. Yeah, like it's where if we're looking at if we're looking at this in terms of what is the most important technology or project in crypto, versus what is the most taken for granted. I reckon it's Wallet Connect because the only way that you actually onboard the masses is by giving a crypto tools they can use on their phones, and the only way to use crypto on your phone is really through Wallet Connect. So I think that's that is underrated. At the same time, it's pretty. It's it's not the best technology in the world, but it's somehow still underrated.
1: I like that.
0: Yeah, great answers. Joan, this has been an awesome conversation. Thank you so much for joining Alf and I on this episode of Show Me the Crypto.
2: Thank you for having one of the hot Canadians on your show. I appreciate it. <laughs> Thank you so much.
1: Thank you for listening to Show Me The Crypto. Please make sure to subscribe as well as rate and review this podcast.